Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along to this week's Writer's Routine, chatting with Joanne Harris, MBE. Uh, She tends to write magical realism. But as you'll hear, she doesn't really concern herself with genre at all. Uh, now, her book, Chocolat, uh, shot her to fame, sold immensely, and was turned into a movie with uh, Johnny Depp and Juliette Binoche. Uh, so we talk about that and how much that has affected the rest of her writing and, and how it gave her quite a lot of freedom, but also quite a lot of anxiety. Uh, we talk about sense, about shelved screenplays, and what she's learned about where writing happens. You know, most writing doesn't happen at a desk or a keyboard. Most writing happens in your head when you're doing other things. And I learned this when I was still teaching. You know, I learned that most of my best ideas and my best dialogues and my best moments came to me when I was in the car driving or when I was going about various pieces of daily business. And I just wrote them up afterwards. And that still happens. More on the way with Joe Harris in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome to the show. Uh, my name's Dan. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside uh, some of the world's best authors' working day. Uh, this week, chatting to Joanne Harris. Her books have been published in over 50 countries. She's won an incredible amount of awards. In 2013, she was awarded an MBE. She's currently chair of the Society of Authors. Now, she's best known for her chocolat, and her new one is called A Narrow Door. It's all about a school that hires a headmistress for the first time ever, uh, who then finds the remains of a body in the grounds. It's magical realism. There's something eerie, something thrilling about it. At the same time, it blends genre because, as you'll hear, Joe doesn't really think about where things are put on the bookshelf at the end of the day. We talk about how the idea came to her, also how her old work has completely influenced her writing routine. You can hear her number one best editing tip, all about how to reboot your brain, how she uses scent to get into the zone, and which classic acting text really helps her get into the characters. Now, if you enjoy what you hear, if you hear any tips along the way that help the way that you tell your stories, a review on Apple Podcasts always goes a very long way. It helps people who might need the tips of our authors find the tips of our authors. So give that a thought if you get a minute. Right now, let's jump into it with Joanne Harris and what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, right now I'm in my shed which is at the bottom of the garden, which is in a kind of wilderness because I haven't done any gardening for a year. And so it's it's particularly inaccessible, which is nice. And initially my shed was supposed to be a kind of monastic workspace, but it hasn't quite worked out that way. It's now full of, of kind of kit clutter and my favourite things. Just run us through some of those favourite things. So where you're sat now, I, I, I imagine it quite a, quite a, a, an efficient writing desk ahead of you is is that right or is it a rickety shed threadbare thing well it it has got a writing desk I'm not sure it's entirely efficient it's covered in candles and candlesticks and paperweights and interesting stones that I've picked up on beaches and a brass frog that used to be on my grandfather's writing desk in France and that's just the desk um 
But yeah, I mean, I, I do tend to have things around me that have little stories attached to them. And because I love the stories, I tend to have the, the objects too. And so there's, there's a stone from a sandcastle that I built with my daughter when she was about 10. Um, I've, I've got lots of little bits and pieces that I've acquired from my travels. I've got a big flag of Hawaii behind me. Um, and I've also got um, a music stand, which my grandfather made when he was 15, with wood bought from the very first job he had. And it's not a very good music stand, and I don't play music in here, but I've got a slate on it with uh, with a quote from Sunday in the Park with George, which I think is probably the best piece of art made about making art, in fact. I'm always amazed by what people have around them, because in the course of almost 200 chats with different authors, I mean, it, it varies quite wildly. Some are so sparse, so minimalist. What is it about these things around you, Joe? That What are they doing when you look at them? How are they helping your creativity and inspiring you? Well, I think that the way I see it, everybody is made of stories and I'm no different. And so I think if I'm if I'm going to write stories in a place, then I should be surrounded with stories. And it helps. Sometimes something that I see triggers something that I then write. Sometimes it's just the fact that none of those things really fitted into the house because I'm married to a husband who quite likes to have things neat and, and who sometimes looks at things with disapproval and goes, doesn't this belong in your shed? <laughs> awaited your shed there um is, is there anything is there anything practical around you joe anything that kind of pertains to the story that you're writing maybe plot points post-it notes that kind of thing i don't generally do that um i don't have post-it notes i do have calendars though i, I i'm i've got dyscalculia and so if i'm writing about something in the past i often have difficulty remembering days of the week and and what happened when and so i generally have calendars at the moment uh, a narrow door was, was set partly in, in 2006, and so I've got a calendar of 2006 still there um, where I've marked various key events just so that I could remember what the moon cycles were if I happened to talk about a nighttime scene or something like this because I just know that if I get it wrong, somebody will tell me. I may as well get it right first time. Is that, is that important for you? If someone weren't picking you up on that in reviews, uh, would you? how much would you care about the precise quarter of the moon that's accurate, you know, 14 years later? Oh, I'm not afraid of people picking it up in reviews because I don't think they would do that. But I think anything anything that takes the reader out of the experience, and I know that some readers are extremely meticulous about detail, as as they should be. And so I think if 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 I'm going to make it as as immersive an experience as it can be, then I do need to get some of the baseline details right. You know, if if the 23rd of June was a Thursday, then there is absolutely no point me saying it was a Monday or trying to make out that it was something else. On the desk, what are you writing on, Joe? Oh, I've got, um, I always write on a laptop. It's, um, it's a Windows Surface book, but I'm not particularly loyal to brands. Um, I've written on very small laptops for over 20 years because when I was a teacher... I, I couldn't obviously have access to a PC everywhere I went. And so I had these little notebook-sized laptops and I've got used to it. My fingers don't seem to work on a, a, a big keyboard anymore. The show can get quite niche. Um, have you got any strong font opinions for your, your little keyboard? Um, I write in Calibri, um, usually at, at about yeah, 12, 11 or 12 but when I um, when I edit, I change the font. This is my number one best editorial hint for anybody who is having problems approaching editing or copy editing. If you change the font to something else, it automatically reboots your brain and puts you into a different mode and makes you see things in a slightly different way with, with those new eyes that editors are always talking about. And I find it very useful. And so I usually go to Courier or something like that, which which I find quite difficult font to write in. But when I'm editing, I notice every word and every misspelling. At what point did you realise that was a, a, a pretty brilliant way for you to edit, the switching of the fonts? Oh, I think pretty much as soon as I started writing on, um, on a laptop. And before, if I wrote, um, I, I wrote longhand, and then I would type it up on a computer. But as soon as, as I got used to doing that and realised that actually the process of writing up 
was adding to all sorts of things. I thought, well, you know, how can I duplicate this with, uh, with, um, you know, a, a PC or a laptop? And so I thought, okay, well, just I'll just change the fonts. And I, I mucked around with a few fonts. I, I had a few favourites beforehand. I haven't been loyal to Calibri forever, but uh, you know, I, I like to write in something plain that allows me to, to think. And I edit in something else that allows me to scrutinise. I'm absolutely in awe of someone that's got themselves a writing shed. I know that you wanted to write and since you were very, very young and and, uh, growing up wanting to be a writer, I think the dream for many people is to to bag themselves a shed. Um, Kind of at what point did it finally happen for, for you? Was this something that you'd always worked towards? Just tell me about the process of having your own space, your own shed to escape to and tell stories at. Oh, it's taken me a long time to have my own space. It really has. Um, I wrote my first, my first books, my first three books, just sitting on the floor with my laptop, surrounded by my daughter's toys in the living room because I didn't have the sort of house which allowed me to have a study or a, a workplace. And so I just, I just used whatever space there was. But when my third book became successful and we moved house and we, we found we had more space, I thought, hooray, you know, I can have an office And that worked all right for a while, except that when you work from home and when your husband works from home and when your parents just live down the lane, people just keep popping in. And I found that it was it was a problem because people didn't generally see that what I was doing could be interrupted in a kind of way that was harmful to the process. And so I I kind of held out for a place of my own. And my husband built me this shed. which is a very posh shed, I have to say, and very nice. And quite often in winter, I like to be there better than the house because it has better heating. You mentioned your, your third book kind of becoming successful. This Would this have been Chocolat? It was, yes. Before that, there was really no chance of me ever giving up my day job. <laughs> I don't want to... I understand that you're, you're you know, in the, in the course of about 22 years since that book's been out uh, with the film, I don't really want to spend too much time because you've probably answered every possible question. <laughs> Having said that, I'm curious, when you've published two books to, you know, some success, but nothing groundbreaking, and then suddenly your third book absolutely blows up, how much do you remember of, I guess, the moment of relief that this was happening, that you could quit your job, you could become a full-time writer, you could move house, that everyone was reading your stories? How much do you remember of the feeling that that success brought? Well, to me, it wasn't so much a moment of relief as a moment of high anxiety, because obviously it was what I'd hoped for. You know, in my wildest dreams, I I would think to myself, you know, what if I won the lottery and I was able to write full time? That that was pretty much the extent of it. And I, I tried to work out how much money I would need to do that. And it was all very modest. And then all of a sudden, this book got picked up incomprehensibly because I was told that it wouldn't sell. And then it was suddenly very popular and it was suddenly number one. And suddenly then it was a movie. And I had to make all these decisions. And one of the most difficult ones was was what to do with my teaching job. I'd been teaching for 15 years. I was good at it. I liked it. I knew where it led. It had a salary. It had regular hours. It had a pension. And all of a sudden I was being expected to tour and do these things for the book. And so I had to give up the teaching job. And, and what was I going to do? So I took a year's sabbatical with the full intention of going back afterwards, I thought, you know, I'll get this book thing out of my system. I'll do what people want me to do with that. And then I'll just go back to what I was doing before, which was writing on the side and teaching full time. Um, And of course, that never happened. Because once you take the plant out of the plant pot and pot it into the earth, then it grows roots. And I just found that I couldn't get back into the plant pot again. And nobody expected me to. I went back to my my head of department at Leeds Grammar School to try to explain to him that I wasn't coming back in September. And and he just laughed and said, oh, darling, we've given your job to someone else. (laughs) (laughs) So that did it. I had to to go out into the wild. And it took me a while to acclimatise because everything was so new and so different. The idea of acclimatising is amazing. I'm, I'm often... Curious about people who are in the storm of success and how much you really realise how swiftly things are changing around you. Were you aware of that at the time? I was, um, and it wasn't entirely comfortable. 
I remember when the film was up for Oscars and I was in London doing various things for my my publishers and my agent. Um, A lot of tabloid journalists turned up at my house in Yorkshire and basically bullied my husband to try and, and get some sort of statement from me. And he kept saying, she's not here, she's not here. And they would follow him when he took our daughter to school and shout at them. And this was completely unprecedented. And of course, I wasn't there and there was nothing that they could be told. Um, And so that was uncomfortable. And I'd just never been used to that level of scrutiny before. I'd, I'd, I'd never been used to talking about myself so much before. I'd never toured for any of my books. I'd never written an article. I'd never done an interview. You know, my, my first two books were such modest successes, if you can call them that at all, but nobody had even heard of them. They, they just assumed, everyone assumed that I'd come out of nowhere and that it was this magical Cinderella story and that I was just this, this school teacher from Barnsley who had somehow weirdly lucked out by accidentally writing a book, you know, the way you're told that an infinite number of monkeys could possibly write Hamlet if you gave them enough time. And it wasn't like that. It was the result of many, many, many years trial and effort and failure and work. But nobody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to hear the Cinderella story instead. Uh, now, my last question about this. <clears throat> At what point, you, you, you mentioned just a second ago that suddenly it was selling and then suddenly it was at the top of the charts and then suddenly it was a movie. Way before that, when you just published the book or maybe a few months after, when it starts getting a little bit of of buzz, at what moment do you remember feeling, oh, okay, this might be different than what has been before for me? Well, that didn't quite happen because it didn't happen in that order at all. What happened was that the book, unpublished, went to the Frankfurt Book Fair, was bought by a dozen countries at once, and was bought by a film company. It then came out in Italy six months before it came out in England, to an enormous furore. It went to number one in the Italian charts, I did an Italian tour, and it was like being a rock star. And then it came out in England, and... It was the same thing. It, it There was no building of momentum. There was no getting used to it. All of a sudden, everybody was talking about this book. There wasn't even much promotion for it because at the, at the time, my English publishers didn't really think that it was going to be a commercial book. They thought it was going to be a literary fiction book. There was even some debate about whether it was going to come out in hardback at all. And then poof, all of a sudden, it was a word of mouth success. And you can't really look at why those things happen. Suddenly it just did. It was, it, was, it was like a kind of literary morphic resonance. Somehow everybody was reading it and everybody was talking about it and nobody quite knew how it had happened. So yes, very strange and, and very unusual. I didn't know at the time how unusual it was. Um, you know, I was just staying afloat. Well, you know, when I was a teacher, I had set hours And I knew that I I had to wait till a certain time to have a cup of tea and all the rest of it. And so now I don't do that. I I don't generally have this rigidly timetabled existence. It's taken me a while to work out that I don't need it. But generally, I will go with what's going on around me. And because I don't generally have the luxury of a lot of free time, I have to build my writing routine around the time that's available. Now, before lockdown... I had to factor in things like visits to to schools and to festivals and foreign visits and, and bits and pieces of journalism and the duties that I have with the Society of Authors and the ALCS and all these other things. And, you know, in a way, it, it felt as if I had a full-time job and that I was still writing in my free time. I've nearly always felt like this. When I left teaching, there was a six-month period where I wasn't required to do a lot of things. And I just basically sat around my house watching DVDs and making cups of tea and wondering who would tell me what to do next. And when nobody did, I thought, okay, I'm going to have to do this for myself. And then momentum gathered and and I got more and more and more commitments. And it was really a question of how to claw back time to to do the thing that I'm supposed to do, the thing that I want to do. Um. Fortunately, I'm very good at doing that. I can write in hotel rooms. I can write pretty much any time, day or night. Um, I've written on planes, on trains. It's not ideal. 
but I do. And during lockdown, of course, most of the commitments that I had either disappeared completely or went on to Zoom, which meant that there was no traveling. And I suddenly had a lot of time. And it's been quite nice in that respect. Ideally, if I did have time to myself, I would get up at around eight-ish, go for a run, maybe have breakfast, start work in the shed at about nine and finish at about lunchtime because I tend generally to prefer writing in the morning. Um, in the afternoon, my attention span goes, um, it's not as, as useful. And so I will keep that time for things like editing and rewriting and housekeeping and this kind of thing. And that would be my ideal day, but it's not always like that. And, and I don't wait for the ideal circumstances to pop up to write because otherwise I, I would write maybe like two weeks a year and the rest of the time I'd be, I'd be off doing other things. There's different things to unpack there. I think because the, the majority of the stuff you've done is what you described uh, in the first instance, that you're clawing time whenever you can around all these things that you've managed to fill your free time with. It's almost a full-time job. Uh, at the start of the day, say, for instance, when you know that you've got to do work for the uh, the Society of Authors, maybe you've got stuff to do down in town. You've uh, When you wake up in the morning, how much are you you know, envisioning moments of when you can write and, and what you want to get done in that time? Because you've not got a lot of space to write with, how much of that little space is fully planned? It's not always fully planned because you never know when something is going to pop up that you have to deal with. Either a situation at the SOA or some last minute piece of journalism that I can't turn down or, or just some crisis or other. So I, I don't generally have an idea of how many words I'm going to write that day or I don't generally have goals in that way. I, I don't find that for me it's useful to my process because I think, you know, it's it's difficult enough hacking this story out of wherever it's coming from without putting myself under pressure about word counts. And so what I have now um, because I do think that it's helpful to me to write a little every day. I have this, this kind of putative word count of 300 words, which I try to get down every day in any circumstance. And so 300 words isn't very much. It, it's, it's 20 minutes, half an hour maybe. Um, and if I do that, I feel that I've accomplished a goal, which I have, and it's an easily accomplished goal, so it means I don't have to, to go around feeling guilty and useless because I haven't accomplished it. But also, more importantly, it keeps the story fresh in my brain, and it means that whatever else I'm doing, the story is still there playing out its possibilities and its dialogues and its characters because, because I've brought it to the surface of my consciousness. Because actually, you know, most writing doesn't happen at a desk or a keyboard. Most writing happens in your head when you're doing other things. And I learned this when I was still teaching. You know, I learned that most of my best ideas and my best dialogues and my best moments came to me when I was in the car driving or when I was going about various pieces of daily business. And I just wrote them up afterwards. And that still happens. With those 300 words, Joe, as you mentioned, it, it's, it's not a whole lot. So how perfect do those 300 words need to be? You said that maybe in the afternoon you'll edit. Are you constantly tinkering as you're going? Are you trying to make sure almost your first draft is the perfect draft? Well, I don't think it's ever the perfect draft, no. Um, it really depends what you mean by perfect. I find that I tend to tinker with things line by line quite a lot. And when I redraft, I usually look at the structure and I move scenes around I add scenes, I take scenes away, I look at the, the, the story arcs and make sure that they make sense and that there isn't something missing. But usually on a line-by-line -line basis, things are pretty clean. And the way, the way it works for me, and it, it may not be like this for everybody, is that every time I start working for the day, I will look at what I wrote the previous day and I will read it aloud. I think reading aloud is, is the other part of my editorial process as well as changing the font that really, really helps me. Because in these days of audiobooks, everything 
potentially should be read aloud and it has to sound good. And also it helps me look at the the rhythms of the phrases, the rhythms of the dialogue. It makes me feel that, that there is a kind of natural music to what I'm writing. And I can very quickly fix it if I'm reading aloud. If there's too many dialogue tags, poof, you just fix them as you go along. So I do this, this kind of baby polish of the thing that I did the previous day by reading aloud, by making a few changes, sometimes a slightly bigger change, and then I will start. And by that time, the reading and the getting back into the book has put me into the zone for the writing. And that's how it works for me. So there's this little process of reading aloud, polishing, writing, reading aloud. And and I do that right till the end, and which means that line by line, usually things are pretty clean. And then I have to look at the structure. On days when perhaps it isn't going so well, and even those 300 words are a little bit of a struggle to come out, it's just not happening for you. How much, have you learned anything that helps that happen? Maybe a little quirk that's particular to you, a, a cup of coffee at a certain time, a precise bit of music playing, something like that? Well, there are lots of things that I use to help me get into the zone. But I think the thing that I use most frequently is scent. Um, I know a lot of performers, a lot of stage performers, and a lot of them use this trick to get into character. They choose a scent, they apply it to that character, and they wear it when they're in character. And I thought, well, how does this really work? And could I apply it to me? And, and basically, it's, it's, it's a Stanislavski technique. There is a book of Stanislavski's called A Writer, um, An Actor Prepares, but I, I always think of it as being a writer prepares because most of those things can apply to writers too. Much of it is about characterization, about getting into character, understanding character. And because, because I've got synesthesia, and essentially I smell colours. How crazy is that? Just, um, I've heard of synesthesia before, <laughs> and I don't want to bog this chat about writing down with the intricate science, but just describe what that means for you. You smell colours at the house. It- yeah, it, it's, 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 a, it's an, an element of neurodiverse brain structure, which means that effectively certain colours will trigger physical scents around me. Um. So right now I'm looking at a cushion which is red and the red triggers the smell of chocolate. But yeah, I mean, so so very much part of my process is, is perceiving the world through colours and scents. And I thought, well, you know, I could, I could use this because scent associations, and this works for everybody, not just for people with synesthesia. We have strong associations with scents that we're not always aware of. You know, if I said to you, picture what your school, your junior school used to smell of, you will be thinking of something very specific. I know you will. There will be the smell of maybe stale school dinners, maybe chalk, depending on what your age is, or that rather sharp smell of whiteboard pens if you're younger than I think you are. Um, There's the smell of cut grass in the summer and of, of people's shoes when they take them off on a sunny day, and all of that will trigger a memory of school. Well, the same thing happens with with scents for me, and I will allocate a scent to a book as I'm writing it and only wear it when I'm writing so that just the smell of whatever that thing is will will get me temperamentally into into the space that I need to to write my book. And I've been doing this for, for over, you know, 15 years, and every one of my books has had a scent. Um Gentlemen and players and uh, different class and narrow door all have the same scent because they're all set in the same world. And it's a Chanel scent called Coromandel, uh, which is woody and sheepha based and slightly floral, but also quite old fashioned because it's it's quite an old fashioned setting that I'm writing about. And it's something that I'm trying to bring back from the past, from my own personal experience of teaching. Well. This now gets process in process. What's the um, what's the system for allocating a certain scent to a different story? Well, I think about the story and what it feels like. And sometimes the story is very much about the main character. So it's the scent that the main character would wear. And sometimes it's, it's something else. I, for instance, I wrote a, a story called Blue-Eyed Boy, which was a very nasty story about a man who, who wants to murder his mother but never quite gets the courage to. And... The scent I, I wore there was Leur Bleu, um, which is a rather interesting, dry, iris-based scent. And it was the scent that the mother wore. 
and he associates it with his mother and with hatred and with fear and pain. And so obviously I've never been able to wear that damn scent again and I really like it, but now it's it's stuck in that book and I have to leave it there. Sometimes the process is absolutely linear and and won't take very long at all. I will get the idea, I will write the idea, and it will be done. And there won't be any percolation. And this has happened twice, twice in 30 years. That, that It happened with Chocolat, which I wrote in literally four months um, and hardly edited at all. It was just boom, right the way through the story. And I knew exactly what was coming. And I hadn't planned it, but it just seemed intuitively right. Every time I sat down to to write the next chapter, I just knew what was going to happen then. And that's very, very unusual for me. It only ever happened again with a book called A Pocketful of Crows, which is a novella, which is a retelling of a child ballad. And I got the idea while I was driving back from Scotland, uh, from Skye. And by the time I'd got home, I knew exactly how the book was going to work. And I didn't want to write the book because I had a quite tricky deadline for another book. But I thought, you know what, I'll just, I'll just get a little bit down, a little bit more down. And by the end of two weeks, I'd written the whole thing. That was a very unusual process. It doesn't often happen like that with me. Most of the time, it's much more of a kind of bringing together of ideas over a really long period of time. For instance, um, you know, sometimes I can have two or three books going on at once. In fact, I nearly always have two or three books going on at once because I'm not one of those people who needs to plan architecturally before they start. I know people who do this. Sophie Hannah does it very, very well indeed. Um, and I'm in awe of people who can do this, but I just generally feel that that's not the way my mind works. I think a lot of a lot of my writing is part of the actual process. It's not about muscle memory or, or knowing the, the road. It's about wanting to find out what happens next. And so there's always this level of uncertainty in my mind about the next thing. Um, which I think if I planned more ahead would disappear and that, that curiosity and that uncertainty would, would go away and the result wouldn't be as good because I do feel that on some level, particularly when I'm writing a book like A Narrow Door, which is based on surprises and twists and revelations, if I can't surprise myself on some level, then the audience won't be surprised either. And so, so yes, it's a messy process. Right now, I've got three books going on at once, and I'm not literally writing three books on the same day. But what happens is that there's a little cyclic rhythm going on. So I will write, let's say, project number one, which to me is, is you know, the, the main project for a while. And then I'll reach a point where I either genuinely don't know what happens next, or I need to do some research, or I just need to let it cook for a while. Because to me, it's a bit like, it is a bit like cooking. You've got You've got your prepping stage, um, during which you can already have something on the hob boiling away just quietly. And you keep checking it from time to time to make sure it's not burning, to make sure you don't have to add something. But you just need to give it time. You give your attention to the thing that you're prepping and then you go back to the other thing. And, and you know, this works fine. It works in cooking. It works in books, too. Um, but it does mean that it's it's a process that's not necessarily quantifiable. And I can't always tell how long a book's going to take me to write because sometimes it can be four months, sometimes it can be 10 years when you're using this process because I do tend to write 50 pages on one thing and then just let it cook for a year or two. And I, I did this with Gentlemen and Players. Um, you know, I told myself that I wasn't going to write about teaching because <laughs> some of my colleagues were still alive. Um and, and so I just had these ideas that were written down, just waiting, waiting to connect to a plot that I needed to, to write. So there's that. Um, I know it sounds like a, an, an unfeasibly messy way to do it, but um, it, I've always thought that whatever road you take to finishing a book, if the end product is a book, then it doesn't really matter how you got there. Everything is a bit of a walk in the woods. You can, you can take a map, you can make your own map up, um, or you can just make it up as you go along. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Back with more from Joe in just a second on Writer's Routine. Uh, if you've learned anything along the way so far, it's been a busy episode. A lot of tips and advice from one of the the best-selling authors of like the last 30 years or whatever it is. Uh, if you've learned anything along the way that might help the way that you tell your stories, it's 200-odd episodes now. You can say thanks to us by becoming a backer on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Uh, for that, you get our never-ending eternal thanks. You also get some merch. You get bonus content. And there is a way for your book to sponsor this show. So if you've released anything in the last couple of years, if you weren't really happy at the uh, the fanfare that it got, uh, what with one thing and another, then, then let me give the plug that I am absolutely certain that it deserves. You can make that happen. You can support the show. You can help us carry on bringing you chats with as many authors as we can, as often as we can, by getting involved and becoming a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Joanne Harris, MBE, this week. We're talking about her new novel, A Narrow Door, which is all about Rebecca Buckfast, the first headmistress at a prestigious school who early on find the remains of a dead body. In this half, we talk about the idea for the story, how it came from a shelved screenplay. Also, what she thinks of genre, really, how she doesn't think of genre. And we pick things up talking about what she likes to know about the story before she sits down to write. I need to know the character voice because I nearly always write in the first person. And there's a reason for this because I like to know the characters before before I get too far into the book. And I don't need to know everything about them, but I need to know their voice. I need their voice to be firm in my mind because if I'm going to use it, then I need to understand how it sounds. And, and this is where the scent comes in too because... It's an intuitive process. It's, it is an emotional process. It's, it's not a process of planning at all. It's like, it's like a love affair. It's like getting to know a person intimately. And so depending on how easily that happens, I can write down little bits and pieces about them. I can think about how their mind works. I can think about what they would order off menus, what they would wear, um, what they like to do in their spare time. Uh, what their past was like. I think with with all characters, I need to understand the relationship they had with their parents, where they went to school, what was formative in their life. And actually, a lot of those things don't make it into the book. It's, it's not supposed to be something that makes it into the book. It's supposed to be something that makes it into the voice so that you know what your character feels and thinks a lot of the time. And that way, that way you get a character that hopefully, if, you, if you've done it right, will sit up and come to life. And I know that sounds a bit like, you know, demonic possession. Um, but actually, I need that to happen because the plot in certain ways is going to be directed by the way the character would behave in the face of various challenges. And to know that, you have to be able to second guess the character. Otherwise, the character will serve the plot you've written. And sometimes in a way that makes the character lie down and die again. You, you don't want that to happen. And so the people, their relationships, their voices. 
And usually I get the first line of the book pretty easily once I've got that, because I know what my character wants to say. I know what's important to them. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes I have to dither around and, and write a few pages of garbage before I get that first line. And then I just I just basically delete everything that came before it. It's a bit like, you know, when you're building something and you use scaffolding to keep it in place and then you knock off the scaffolding and poof, there's your there's your first line standing alone. Now, the new one is a narrow door. Just tell us, Joe, about the very first moment that you that the idea for this story came into your head? How did it present itself? Well, there were two things really with this. In a sense, it is the continuation of a story that started with gentlemen and players. And so there was a lot of scaffolding that didn't have to be erected because I already knew my main character, Roy Straitley, the Latin teacher of St. Oswald's. I, I know his voice very well. I talked with a lot of people who were very like Roy Straitley. I can do that voice. Um, it's not from a single person, but it's from a lot of different people and from a lot of actual teaching experience. And so that voice is pretty solid in my mind. But with those books, there are always two voices. There's, there's Straitly, and then there is somebody else. There is an antagonist. Um, in this case, the antagonist is the new head of the school. And I knew that she was going to be the new head in the last book, Different Class. I knew because she was the, the deputy in a trio of a, a crisis team of a head and two deputies who came to basically fix a failing school. St Oswald's, a second-rate independent school in the north of England, has had a lot of trouble and uh, a lot of scandals. And this, this new shiny crisis team was brought in to try and fix things. That didn't quite happen, but Rebecca Buckfast, the first deputy, has remained and has now become the head. And the thing that really was, was baking my noodle was what's her story? What's her story? Because I don't tell it in different class. I don't need to. She's, she's, a, she's a secondary character. But in A Narrow Door, I needed it. And so I didn't write this book until I knew it. And I've been racking my brains for something interesting and different because I didn't want to write any of my previous books again. And because this whole series is, is based on twists and revelations and surprises... I felt a kind of pressure on myself to do something different and more surprising and unpredictable every time. And the more you do these things, the less easy that becomes. So I kind of shelved the first 70 pages of A Narrow Door, which were in Straitley's voice. And I knew that that wasn't going to be how it was going to stay. But I thought, OK, I'll just, I'll just leave it and see what occurs. And it just occurred to me that I had a great story, a school story about a woman but it was a supernatural. And I had also shelved it some time ago because it wasn't a novel, it was a screenplay. I'd been writing it for a, a TV company. Um, and for various reasons, the thing just didn't happen. It just didn't get off the ground. But I had several scripts and I had a prototype story. And damn it, it was a really good one and it deserved something. And I thought, you know what, I'll give this to Buckfast. It's going to be her story. And all of a sudden I knew a whole lot more about Buckfast than I'd thought before. And I thought, wow, okay, this is this is okay. I can go with this. And so I wrote the first chapter in her voice and it was right there. I could hear it. It was just properly in place. I don't know it was if it was because I'd written so much dialogue in the screenplay or, or just because it was the right time for me to to listen to this woman's voice. And she is she is at the same time monstrous and vulnerable and clever, and charming, and and deeply sinister. And I thought, oh, I like her. And so I ran with it, and I, I spliced these two stories together. It's, it's happened to me before, where I had two orphan stories that, that just met and fell in love and, and became a book. If you need to know so much about your characters, that's the one thing that you said you really need to know is your character and their voice before you start. How are you doing that before you type that very first sentence? What methods are you using to really know every facet of your character before you put them on this adventure that, that you'll go on with them? Well, I don't need to know every facet of their character because sometimes I discover things about them on the way that are equally important and that will serve the plot. But I do need to know a lot. And I have to say, I can recommend Stanislavski's book, An Actor Prepares, 
because it's all about getting into character. And I do think that for me anyway, being a writer is very much like being a character actor, being a method actor. It is writing becomes a kind of performance. Um, to get into the skin of somebody, to understand them, you have to see how, how you relate to them, how you can use episodes from your own experience to to build them, to make them real to you and to connect. Um, and so it, it's all kinds of things. Um, in my, my little book, 10 Things About Writing, there's a whole bunch of stuff about getting into character that I use. Um, and some of it is just literally imagining them being there with you. Um, going for a walk, what would they notice? Um, if they saw somebody being attacked in the street, what would they do? You can tell a lot from somebody's reactions to to challenges. Um, you can find a lot about people just by the way they eat. Um, you know, are they are they somebody who who likes to eat? Do they do they issue food? Have they got food fads? Do they like to get together with other people? Are they sociable about food? Are they greedy? Um, are they hung up about it? You know, you can because I've written so much about food in some of my other books, I've thought about this a lot, but it, it also translates into, into all sorts of other aspects of just talking about people. Um, you know, did they have a good relationship with their parents? Did they hate their parents? Were their parents distant? Where did they go to school? Did they go to boarding school? Were they neglected as children? Uh, did they have much money? Um, all of these things are formative. They're vital to the development of a life, to a character. Um, Nobody just just leaps unbidden from the brow of Zeus um, in real life, and I don't really see how they how they could convincingly do that in fiction either. So all of these little things I will add to my perception of a character, and it really is like getting to know somebody. You have these imaginary, or maybe it's just me. I have these imaginary conversations with the character, and I I work out what I feel about them how they became what they what they are and what we've got in common. You know, you walk around a bookshop, what would they look at? Would they look at fiction? Would they look at non-fiction? Do they ever read at all? What newspaper do they read? What did they vote last election? Uh, did they vote at all? All these things, they, you know, these, these little things that you would pick up when you were getting to know somebody. And it works just as well with people in fiction because, you know, sometimes fictional characters can feel much more real to a reader than a real person in the real world with, you know, a life and a heartbeat, and but who doesn't feel real to them because they don't know a thing about them. I've always had a difficulty with understanding why genre is such a big deal in publishing. Because I suppose because as a child reading, I never thought this is a mystery uh, this is a romance, uh, this is a thriller. I never thought about that. I never thought in genre. I never even thought about whether something was a children's book or not. Um, I just read things. And I think that I write in the same way. I just write things and I let I let people work out how to market them later because actually marketing the book isn't my job. Categorizing it isn't my job. And I think, you know, I have made it quite difficult for my publishers because some of the things that I've written are quite difficult to categorize. Um, but, you know, it's kind of up to them to do it if they feel that something needs to be categorized. I've often felt that actually we would be better off if there was less rigid categorization because much of what I write has a relevance to other things that I've written outside of that genre. For instance, you know, I've got these, these books that are loosely sold as magic realism, um, I'm still not entirely sure whether that's what they are because I don't really know what magic realism is. But, you know, things set in the real world which have elements of magical thinking. Um, but to me, that world is very close to the world of A Narrow Door and Gentlemen and Players where there is no magic at all. But there are shifts in perception that actually you could almost interpret as supernatural. You know, I think much of what we think of as magic is really a kind of metaphor for transformation, for personal charm. When, when we look at the language of magic, you've got these words like glamour and charm and charisma, and those are not supernatural concepts. Those are absolutely well-known individual human concepts projected 
as something supernatural. So, you know, I think there's there's a significant overlap. I think what I write about is is perception and deception and transformation. And I can do that within the framework of outright fantasy, where, where what you know you're going to get werewolves and, and dragons and flying snakes and that kind of thing, but also the magical realism where you know you won't get those things, but you will get this this filter, if you like, of, of, of magic. And right into the solid, the real world, where actually the sands are shifting all the time because when you're writing a, a thriller, you are you're really counting on the fact that you are going to be able to deceive the audience for some of the time and, and fool them into thinking that that something is one shape when it's actually a completely different shape at the end. So, and, and the things that I write about, you know, the things that I'm interested in, they continue across all the genres that I write in. They, they, I, I don't stop thinking about feminism or otherness or the outsider or how we present ourselves or, or human relationships just because I've, I've shifted from one genre to another. And so I, I do think that everything I've written actually locks together with something else that I've written. And at some point, maybe when my life's work is done, I'll be able to stand back from the jigsaw and it'll be complete. And people will go, oh, yes, that's the picture she was trying to show us. And it will it will exist all across the genres, across the fantasy, across the thrillers, across everything, maybe even the cookbooks. Who knows? That is it for this week. A massive thanks to Joanne Harris for coming on the show. If you enjoy the sound of her brand new book, A Narrow Door, uh, get a copy, buy a copy for Christmas. Use your local independent bookseller, I reckon. Uh, now, next week, we're with uh, a debutant. So we're going from one of the most successful authors of the 21st century uh, to someone brand new. Uh, the debutant Alice Hunter and her psychological thriller, The Serial Killer's Wife. Uh, that's coming up next week. In the meantime, you can support the show, become a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. And you can always say hello by using the contact page over at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with Alice Hunter on the show. Until then, bye. <laughs>